Miss Macintosh, my darling, Chapter 54, Part 3. But Mr. Spitzer did not say whether in his wanderings he had ever met a man disguised as a woman, for he could not know everything. And indeed, his intuitions were merely sporadic, as he suffered from periods of darkness, from blinding headaches that which were similar to migraines, from vertigo which caused him to reel in his walks as if he had been drinking. He had found in another camp an old man who, dying of cancer, had not known he had been the world's greatest cancer specialist before he had crawled away to hide himself among the faceless ones, whores and pimps and robbers and bank presidents. This old man had said that the worm is the all-devouring mother, eating away the stars as if they were the leaves on a tree, and now space was invading him. His desire to hide oneself and be lost in the crowd was something Mr. Spitzer could so well understand. Respected it in others because it was like his own desire, which he would ultimately have realized, had it not been for his living double. He had found a banker who had not known he was a banker, a lawyer who had not known he was a lawyer, a judge who had not known he was a judge, a Wall Street broker who had not known he was a Wall Street broker, an Arctic explorer who had not known he was an explorer until Mr. Spitzer came. He came with his briefcase and his pretended air of importance and his list of leading questions, for he had found these poor persons to be highly susceptible to the least suggestion from him, and so he was careful to be abrupt, careful not to make his remarks rhapsodic. For a smoke, a puff from his perfumed cigarette, a fellow had offered him the Chase National Bank and the city morgue, and several great mergers in his estates on other planets. President of many ruined railroads suffering from delusions of persecution, had complained to Mr. Spitzer that someone was trying to railroad him, railroad him to eternity, no doubt, Mr. Spitzer believed, thinking of himself. A fellow had offered Mr. Spitzer several burial grounds. Another had said, my kingdom for a horse. This old fellow had told Mr. Spitzer he was the king of Krakow, living in the city clump, city dump with his prime minister, who was also his secretary of finance and his equerry, his valet and his master of the jeweled mace, and naturally, Mr. Spitzer had been quite skeptical as to these grandiose claims. Yet, greatly to Mr. Spitzer's embarrassment, for almost everything embarrassed him, causing his face muscles to twitch, his heart to beat with a muffled beat, he had found the next day, stamped upon his much-stamped passport, Krakow. And he did clearly never visit Krakow in this life, just as he had never visited the kingdom of the dead. Again, a fellow had offered him a carbuncle for Maharaja's crown, for the same price for which he would have sold a glass bauble, a mere piece of paste, lead glass composition, deceptive brilliancy used in imitation stones. Though Mr. Spitzer could see at a glance the jewel was real, he would have bought it only if it had been glass. In fact, if it had been glass, he might have tried to pay the same price he would have paid for a carbuncle. He preferred glass jewels for the reason that glass jewels were glass, but real jewels were real, and therefore of no value to him. Besides, he could own nothing that was real. If he had owned a real jewel, he would have had to have had it insured against theft. In so many ways, a real jewel would have added to his difficulties, it would have made him conspicuous, it might have set him apart. It might have made him even the object of envy. So he had refused this offer, not even bothering to show his remorse, for Mr. Spitzer's conscience was clear, flawless, without stain, and yet Mr. Spitzer must be suffering, as he dimly realized from a nervous disorder, an emotional instability he could not quite define, or jangled bones, for perhaps his bones had been reassembled in the wrong pattern, and he was certainly suffering from taut nerves. For there were so many shocks and embarrassments in this life, so many unnecessary complications and after-effects of those effects which at the time seemed to have made no impression on him. Had he not been offered the Tower of London and the Ravens? He had quite forgotten this rare jewel he had been offered on a dim street corner, forgotten thief's features, which perhaps he had never really noticed or seen, the whole episode having been completely covered over in Mr. Spitzer's mind, one with the limbo of all forgotten things, even like something which had never happened. 
for perhaps he, Mr. Spitzer, had been standing in an altogether different street corner, perhaps two streets beyond, perhaps even in a different city, one no longer of this earth, and probably never would have thought of this great carbuncle, carbuncle again, such transactions having become almost a commonplace. So he was greatly harassed and shocked, agitated almost beyond belief, and his mind was a whirlpool of seething belligerence, when it was all brought back to him by his reading the next day in the morning newspaper, which, carefully folded so that he would not miss the place, he found at his breakfast table, beside his coffee cup, that a jewel was missing from Baraja's crown, that the police were looking for the thief, but had no idea what he looked like. The fact that there was no clues to the ident identity of the thief had added to Mr. Spitzer's agitation. His fear that he would become involved, and though he had tried to assure himself that he was in no way involved, though he had tried to dismiss the episode as being of no importance to him, as something like an ill-timed joke, a fleeting moment, yet with the passing days his sense of horror had grown, certainly far beyond the original cause, and he had been filled with the adventitious anguish of self-reproach, sometimes because he had taken this jewel, sometimes because he had not taken this jewel, because he was not guilty and he had lain low, Janish Chloe, trembling at the stealthy sound of each advancing footfall, even an imaginary footfall or knocking on the door, and he had not crept out of his house. He had not even answered the telephone, for the telephone had been disconnected. He had been afraid to cross the threshold. He had been afraid that, if he looked around him, might find the jewel which the police were looking for, might even find it in his own coat pocket. He had not gone on his errands for several days, had been afraid to be seen, and indeed for several days the papers had been filled with nothing else but vague speculations to this purloined jewel, many experts lending themselves to the mystery of the great carbuncle which was stolen from the visiting Raja's crown, the Raja having come to this country only to attend the steeplechase, to put his money on the nose of a horse. Of course there were numerous exaggerations and errors, and as in many such instances of theft, Mr. Spitzer had known, for example, that the jewel had not been as so large as the Rajah said, and had been tempted to make an anonymous phone call to the police and tell them the size of the jewel, that they should look for something infinitesimal. And also, as this great Rajah was worth his weight in priceless jewels, or many times his weight, why should he miss one jewel? He could merely lose weight, still be worth his weight in jewels. Indeed, as Mr. Spitzer doubted the size of the jewel, he had begun also, very reluctant, reluctantly, to question its value, to believe that perhaps he had been mistaken believe that perhaps it had not been real. There were so many causes of Mr. Spitzer's blindness, so many sources of his intrinsic despair, but perhaps the jewel had grown and was now of an altogether different size than when Mr. Spitzer had seen it last. He had finally concluded and had been considerably relaxed until he had read that someone had seen the thief and given the thief's description, which was a description of himself. Poor Mr. Spitzer an unknown man wearing a black cape and having an eccentric, suspicious air, peering blankly into the blank faces of strangers, talking to himself, walking rapidly back and forth as if he did not know which way to go, as if he could not make up his mind. And the police were tracing this man through all the streets of Boston and New York and even Philadelphia, where he had been seen crossing Rittenhouse Square one cold, rainy evening just as the lamps went on. And even Toronto, Canada, for beginning with the first false report, there were so many wild rumors like a contagion, false tips, anonymous phone calls to the police station, unsigned letters, confusing clues, keys to many mysteries. And there were so many people who had seen him, sometimes simultaneously, it seemed, in many cities, sometimes sequentially, as if he had moved from place to place or the people had moved. It was believed that he might have stolen across the international boundary line, that perhaps he was fleeing north. He had been seen leaving, leaving the Grand Central Station. He had been seen, seen leaving the old terminal. But there were various theories, and perhaps he was also fleeing south, Mr. Spitzer had read with considerable interest, trying to check his moves, if only he could find out. 
Like an army general, he would have liked to have marked his moves with black-headed pins if only the map had not been so amorphous with its boundary lines and undefined and moving like clouds. He could not help being vaguely flattered that it was believed this jewel thief was an old-timer, an international jewel thief who had stolen several jewels and had never been caught, though he was wanted in several cities. He had been seen crossing Brooklyn Bridge, Brooklyn Bridge in the fog. He had been seen outside the old opera house, talking to an old prima donna who would sing no more. There were someone who there were some who believed he had never left Boston, or that if he had left, he had already returned. Those who had seen him only reluctantly walking, those who had seen him only recently walking along Pickney Street, whispering with a pigeon murmur. Those who had not seen him but had heard the pigeon murmur. The others who had seen the pigeons, others who believed that he had taken refuge in the kibosh, on the Casbah, a native quarter of some great foreign city more intricate than Boston. The Canadian Mounties were looking for him in the frozen north. He had been seen by the Eskimo hunter, and the cowed Arab had seen him. He had been seen by the doorman at the at the Ritz. He remembered that he had seen him several times, often, pa often passing this way. A gentleman with a blurred facial expression, they had exchanged several remarks about the inclement weather, the cold rain, the whirling snow, the formations of the clouds, and this doorman, whom Mr. Spitzer sighingly remembered, for he had given him his gratuitous legal advice. It was a former Grand Duke of Russia, a nephew of the murdered Tsar, and had owned vast holdings in the land of Catherine the Great. A thousand serfs, ten thousand serfs, minions to do his bidding in measurable steps, golden samovars and great country houses and carriage houses, innumerable footmen, doormen, dogs, slaves. Indeed, the Mr. Spitzer had forgotten them until he was recalled to his mind. They had spoken several times of Grand Russia and imperial stocks and bonds which were now languishing on the Wall Street Stock Exchange, and which, though there had been no trade for many years, and though these certificates were probably worth less than old soup coupons, yet would show a slight flutter of interest whenever it was rumored that the Tsar might return or whenever some old Bolshevik was killed. Murdered in his sleep, whatever it seemed that the new regime might totter. Storman's bearded bishop also often passed this way. With his doorman, whom Mr. Spitzer advised to wait to bide his time through howling snowstorms, he had often passed the time, so it was quite naturally flattered that the storeman remembered him as he had been in life, and several street peddlers had spoken to him. He had been sold a white buccaneer by a blind flower girl at a bridge. It was remembered that he was seen stopping at an old hackney stand asking the direction, talking to an old hackney driver who, though he had driven in this city all his life, had not known the street where he had said he wanted to go, had never heard of it in the north or the south or the east or the west, and believed it was nowhere under the stars. He was seen by the bell ringers, the chimney sweeps, the lamp lighters, lighting the dim city lamps. Often he was seen by the fishmongers passing on the dark wharf. He was seen looking at department store windows. He was seen buying a newspaper. There were those who believed he had crossed a mare, Clossum. Others that he had crossed an open sea. Watchers were stationed at all the city gates, all the bridges, all the ports. There were those who believed he had taken asylum in a port of lost souls, a place with which this government had no extradition agreement a place from which he could not be returned. Others insisted that if one left a note at a certain saloon, now demolished, the note would be surreptitiously passed on, that one might still throw an intermediary, establish communication with him, though always by indirection, for he was the inveterate gambler, still taking the bets. Yet Mr. Spitzer all this time had never stirred one step, so he was amazed that he had been seen, and he was even more curious, undoubtedly, than the authorities. He was even hoping that the authorities, having spread this network, would find him. Pinkerton's men alter several days or years. After several days or years, had gotten the scent of the fugitive and were following him, shadowing him. And Mr. Spitzer had certainly been filled with mixed feelings, both of alarm and relief. 
for the scent of his own eau de cologne, a scent of mixed flowers. And now he's being tracked by a man who, having lived in the wilderness, could follow a man by his scent through a great city, through a terrible wilderness of streets. And now they knew he wore a high silk hat. And now they knew he carried in his right hand a walking stick, which he continually waved when he spoke. And someone else had remembered his pearl-buttoned spats, and someone else had remembered his attitude of plaintive inquiry at every street corner. That he had seemed a man for whom every new moment was a crisis, and someone else had remembered his generosity. And he was always good for a handout, that he would always give away a coin. Others had remembered only a soft, low, lonely voice. Many began to doubt that such a generous man could be the thief. Some believed that the police were looking for the wrong man. Some began to think that he had sought a voluntary self-exile, that he had disappeared for reasons which would never be understood. And whatever these reasons were, they had nothing to do with the mystery of the great carbuncle. Some began to think that the Raja was a thief of a jewel he had stolen from his own crown. And indeed, as for Mr. Spitzer, he had been so much moved by this haunting description of himself, he would certainly, and for no reason but to ease his own mind, having given himself up to the police, how often was he was tempted to do so. At least to the extent of saying that he had seen a thief whom he could not remember and who was now like only a fleeting shadow in his mind, though he had stolen nothing, though he had stolen only the jewel of time. But he had been afraid that even a phone call might be traced, though he phoned from a distant way station afraid that the voice would be recognized, though he spoke with a muffled voice, or that if he wrote a note it would be seen that the handwriting was his, afraid that he would be further implicated than he already was, or that he might be considered an unreliable witness, that his own credentials would then be examined and it would seem that he was not himself, that he was dead. And then he would be only out, another outcast, and he would be no different from anybody else. He would lose his sad distinction, such as it was. And besides, as he would still insist, talking to himself with a watery whisper, he was innocent. Something, as he would always say, had been stolen from him, something more precious than life, more precious than death. And besides, he had no memory of the thief. He had seen so many thieves, so many who were the rags and patchwork of themselves.' 